Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us. Today, we're very lucky to have the co-founders of Scout AI, Barrett and Brett. Uh, please, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks it's so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be back, guys. Yeah, so we, we had you on the show probably a year ago, I think. Uh, and since that time, you've done a bunch of things. Tell us, what's, tell us about Scout. For those in the audience who don't know about Scout AI, tell us about it. Yeah, so Scout is a community exploring the social implications of technology. And our goal is to give people what we call scenario planning tools to upgrade their thinking about the future. And when we launched a year ago, we started with our MVP, this unique approach that combines analysis and reporting with near-term science fiction. So when we cover a topic like genetic augmentation or direct brain interfaces, we'll look at what's going on today, but then either we'll write or we'll commission science fiction from New York Times bestselling science fiction authors to look at where things might go in the next one to seven years. And the idea is we want to help people cultivate what we call strategic imagination, the ability to, to think further ahead and more strategically about where things might go in a way you might not get from kind of M&A coverage in TechCrunch or the Harvard Business Review. Um, so that's the, that's the core of what we're doing. And, and it's, it's been really exciting seeing people's uh, feedback and how much participation we've gotten and, and also just how much the world has changed in the last year. Yeah, so we uh, before we came on the show this morning, Brett, you were talking about how uh, maybe a year ago this sounded like a crazy idea, but now it sounds like uh, right in the heart of uh, the world. Yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. And, and we kind of have two responses. One is one of our biggest advantages is there are closet or not-so-closet science fiction fans everywhere. And so like we'll be at a meeting either in like a government agency or a company and they'll be like, oh yeah, I love this. This is so cool. But the other response uh, was like, oh, this is this is seems kind of cool, but kind of weird. You know, we kind of got that when we were thinking about this thing two years ago or a year ago. But now so much has changed. I mean, even in the last two weeks, uh, you see Elon Musk has gone from almost halfway done with the world's largest automated factory to now announcing two to four new gigafactories across the globe. And before we even ha are beginning to understand the impacts of Facebook's newsfeed algorithm on, uh, on elections, Mark Zuckerberg is hiring 50 engineers to build a direct brain interface. So this stuff is happening every day at an accelerating rate. And people are like, oh, yeah, we, we are living in science fiction times, not to mention the political dystopia that we all have in our social media feeds. So yeah. um, there's definitely been a, a more of a kind of eye opening, like, oh, I get it uh, as we talk to people. I, I would add also, you know, one of the things that was really fun for us to, to learn about as we started Scout was there's this crazy secret history of science fiction and how it shaped the world. Right. So one of our science fiction authors, uh, Greg, Greg Bear, actually used to give uh, weekly science fiction briefings to Ronald Reagan. So Ronald Reagan did that? And then didn't Obama do that too? Didn't Obama so Obama, Obama um, worked with a couple different projects. Um, uh, he interfaced with the Project Hieroglyph and brought a bunch of science fiction authors um, into the White House to look at near-term stories of how uh, we could use technology for good. Um, and he also, and as you saw his last year out, he got more and more interested in questions of artificial intelligence and reinventing the social safety net. You know, he was guest editor at Wired. So I think that's going to be a big part of his legacy moving forward. But all along the way, DARPA, DOD, all these different government agencies were working with science fiction authors. Interesting. So tell me about, 
the accelerator you went through because that must have been pretty exciting. That was was that? I mean, how do you look back on that now? You just finished this thing. Yeah, right? we so we. I just got back. Brett's actually still in New York. He's he's coming back tonight. Okay. Um, but it was so so the the accelerator is called Matter VC, um, and it's a coalition of top media companies around the around the country, including the New York Times, the AP, the Tribune Company. I guess now now called Trunk. Okay. Um, and and you know a whole host of others. And so for us as a as a media company that was starting to kind of get our feet under us, it was a really exciting and and fascinating group to be a part of because we're going through. We were one of eight teams selected to be in New York uh, for their first New York class ever. Oh. Um, and their network of executives and uh, you know media folks is is just incredible like yeah. we we had basically weekly uh you know we, we got to have weekly chats with some of my media personal media heroes right? right so people like the founder of the information jessica lesson um danielle morrill founded Mattermark. uh um so so that i think f- for me was was the be- like really the best part and also just the the people that run matter are incredible like they're so dedicated to what they do they're so passionate about uh using like supporting media f- for good, uh, and that's a pretty unique thing in the world of, of venture capital. Right. Yeah, and, and it's something I was I was skeptical, and uh, Barrett was the one that led us to New York. I was like whining about leaving Seattle. I'm like, <laughs> it's going to be hot and stinky in New York in the summer. But I'm so glad we went. And like Barrett was saying, you know, we were talking about thinking about doing a podcast, and all of a sudden, Alex Bloomberg, uh, you know, a couple days later, is coming in for an intimate interview talking about how we launched. Um, Gimlet Media. And then it was like, we got a Slack message from one of the Matter people. And I was like, hey, get ready for your 3.30 meeting. And who's the 3.30 meeting? Oh, it's the CTO of the New York Times. It's like, oh, okay. So it was this immediate access to really thoughtful people, but also kind of the heart of the media ecosystem and getting their perspectives, building friendships and community. And, and that was great. Hey, Mike, you're working on a brain interface, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no, but we were talking about brain interfaces for, like leading into the show. Like um yeah, I mean it's I'm certainly interested in that, but I think that's a bit uh, uh, punching above my my weight class. Um yeah, I I don't think I'll be making a brain uh, computer interface anytime soon, but I'd love to buy one when there's one ready. Well, but tell me what, there are a lot what, of what other do you guys people that are working on it? Yeah, so I didn't realize that that um Facebook was is, is Zuckerberg working on that within the Facebook umbrella or is it his own thing? No, it's inside of Facebook. He announced it at the the F eight conference. Um, you know, he was just talking about all of the ways that they admired Snapchat so very closely. And then he transitioned and said, "We have we've hired fifty engineers who are working on a direct brain interface, so that you talk can- about talk about difference. I mean, I know Snapchat's a big deal, and they <laughs> and and like they're you know." But but like comparatively, there seems to be like a shift lately. I don't know if I don't know if it's actually happening, but but um, between sort of the last last decade seems to have been a lot about social media and and like I would call it like social apps and internet connective things that aren't necessarily all that technologically sophisticated. I mean, not to say Facebook isn't technologically sophisticated because I'm sure it's hard to connect all those people and manage all that data. But in general, it's it's not. You wouldn't think of it as like hard science. It's more about like building communities. Um, I, I don't know. Do you think there's a shift from from that sort of web 2.0 social media stuff to a more hard science uh, you know drones and ai and self-driving cars and brain to uh, brain to um hum- brain to computer interfaces i mean all that stuff feels like it's a it's a 
you know, harder, harder tech. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there definitely has been. And, and that's, I mean, what you're describing is basically the reason that Brett and I decided to start Scout two years ago, you know. So we saw this, what you're describing, coming on. And we saw basically the the huge impact that it would have, not just on uh, the economy, but on the political and social world that we live in. Um, and, and the complete lack of preparation or thought that was going into most of the development of those technologies at that time. Now there's, now there's more, go- more of it, but, um, I, yeah, we, there, I would say that there, there definitely has been a shift. I mean, and, and a lot of it is driven by, you know, people say that mobile is kind of at the top of the S curve and it's played out, but, uh, so there's this, there's this race to figure out like, what is the next thing? Um, and I think VR is is kind of one of those things. Is that what Zuckerberg means when he says a brain <laughs> interface? What is that, a brain interface, anyway? What, is it, what does he mean? Yeah, uh, he didn't go into too much detail about ex- the exact uh, technology, but, I mean, there's several different ways to do it. Um, DARPA is looking at a kind of multimodal brain interface, anything from you put sensors on the forehead to uh, you have um, uh, direct brain implants, um, to a broader kind of like biosensor um, where you've got like you can measure blood pressure and everything else because there, there are many ways to direct to detect brain activity. Um, so I, it's not it's not really clear what part they're uh, what part they're going into, but um, I'm sure it, I would imagine it's it's measuring things like how do you stay engaged? What's the emotional curve of your 20 minute session on Facebook? How might you extend that? How might you lead that to? engagement in different types of content. Um, you know, and then, and then there's uh, um, Elon Musk's Neuralace, which uh, seems like it's more of a um, kind of direct biological play where you get, um, uh, you get to tap into the direct electrical activity inside of a brain. But Mike, to your, your point, um, you said, you know, as soon as you could buy one, uh, uh, you would. I may advise against that. You can actually buy things <laughs> online uh, that are called transcranial stimulation, and it's based off of techniques that were used by the CIA and the Army for snipers, that basically it's targeted electrical shocks uh, to the head, to the brain, um, that are meant to um, deepen the pathways around certain tasks. So like if an Mm -hmm. analyst, you're trying to focus better. It's like, all right, have these little shocks. All of a sudden, you can focus deeper. You can think that thought better. For snipers, you can concentrate better, uh, calm your breath. and there's whole Reddit communities of people that are trying this on their own. Um, this is not something I would want to mess with as a, uh, as a prototyping feature. Um, I, I, I admire people that are like on the forefront of pioneering. Uh, well, I, don't know. I think it's kind of interesting that, when, that people are trying it on their own. But I would be a lot more hesitant about allow- buying someone else's. Uh, yeah, like if you don't know how it works. Yeah, what, yeah. Totally. So, um, have you seen <laughs> there's a, there's a thing? It's like it looks like a, they sell it on Amazon. I, I don't know what who the company is, but it's like a it looks like a set of Beats headphones, but it's got a bunch of spikes like coming out of the out of the thing, and <laughs> and, and it's it's basically for. Sp- I think they've been selling it as kind of a sports enhancement device, but I think it it stimulates, but it also looks a little bit like snake oil. It's kind of hard to tell. Um, but it's, it, it's basically looks like beat, beats headphones with some like, uh, like bumps on, on the, um, on the, the headset part that kind of touch the tops of your head as it goes across. And that that's supposed to stimulate your brain while you're doing whatever muscle memory activity is you're trying to like learn better. And, um, I think this sells for three or $400. Um, it looked interesting. I didn't, it didn't look like, uh, I, don't, I don't know how good the contacts 
would be or how precise that would be. Well, uh, it, well, it looks a little sketchy to me. Well, I mean, and, and this is one of the this is one of the challenges, and uh, um, we were talking to chief scientists at this really great uh, investment firm called Lux Capital, and their whole thing is investing in hard science, and basically that we're entering science fiction times. So we obviously got along, but um, I think you're going to see more organizations, more companies, more investment groups, um, and uh, especially people valuing this, basically having to have science uh, um, literacy and capability. Because it's it's past the point where you can just kind of like pattern match and and intuitively pick out whether this works or not. If you're not evaluating it at the core technological and scientific basis, you're you're kind of left to wonder like, is this snake oil? Does this really work? Like, what does the Better Business Bureau say? Like, that doesn't really help. So, like, we've got to kind of upgrade our thinking on like what's the what's the science of this and the feasibility. What do you think about the, I mean, the, in the political culture we have now, I don't know, you know what your political leanings are, but it does seem like there's a bit of a war on science going on by, the, by some people who, who, who think science is not real. Um, I mean, is, do you think this is going to lead to like a divide between, you know, people that, that pay attention to science and believe in science and believe in technology and the people that think that, you know, they can't trust anything that scientists say. And then there'll be like a division between people that are that are leveraging and taking advantage of the benefits that science offer and the people that choose to to um, to not pay attention. I, I don't know. It, it could you could see a, a um, you know, a bigger a bigger rift between people where one is, is accessing technology and one is not. Yeah. I mean, we so one of Scout's most popular pieces this year was called The Rise of the Weaponized AI Propaganda Machine. And The Rise of the Weaponized AI Propaganda Machine uh, was co-written by Brett and I, um, and we spent months researching this. But it was the first piece to really pull together uh, how all of the technological pieces that were put into play to elect Trump. Um, and one of the things that that was done, and there were a lot of things that contributed to this. Uh, I wouldn't say that any one thing was the deciding factor. But together, all of these different pieces actually did have an, a really powerful effect on on the way the country looked at candidates and the way the country looked at facts and truth, which I think goes along with that science thing. And what we saw was that uh, there were a few companies, so Breitbart, in partnership with uh, Russian propaganda news sites and alt-right news sites, were able to actually game search engine optimization so that anyone who searched for news about Trump would see positive results rather than negative results. Um, and that they especially did that after any time that there was a scandal that came out, like the video, the infamous Billy Bush video, right? Um, and and that, that was combined with the work of a company called Cambridge Analytica, who is also... Uh, which, by the way, uh, Robert Mercer is an investor in both of those companies, Breitbart and, and Cambridge Analytica. And Cambridge Analytica used uh, weaponized AI propaganda to uh, – he basically created – or Cambridge Analytica created a personality profile for every um, American citizen. Um, and then they used those to A-B test ads in, in your Facebook feed that no one else could see but you. So where before, the, like, political ads have always been controlled by the SEC, there's no way for them to actually look at these ads and see if they, they could be legal or illegal or, or whatever's going on. Um, and they're able to test over and over and over again um, different A-B combinations to see which ads and which topics actually appeal to your personality the most. So, yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is that – you ask, like, is will there be a time when this happens? It's it's already ha happening. It's it's here and it's shaping the the way the world the world works and the way political 
uh, elections are shaping up. Like in, it was fascinating to see. Do you think people see- catch on? Like, do you think, do you think that this is a, you know, this is the forefront of this change? I mean, next election cycle, will people be more, uh, I don't know, careful about what facts they believe and what they don't? I mean, will, will we, will we be able to adjust as a community or is this just, is the AI going to get better and, and better faster than we get better at detecting when we're being manipulated? Well, bo- both of those things uh, can happen. And uh, I think this is a big part where the tech community has a massive responsibility to, to jump in and do something. Uh, we've seen a big change from the day, at, the week after the election when Mark Zuckerberg said it was ludicrous to suggest that Facebook had a role in the election to multiple announcements and changes to the platform where last week they said they will try and uh, actively stop what they called information operations. And that's things that are both what the Russians have been doing in the U.S. elections and media sphere since Donald Trump got elected and Cambridge Analytica and other things. So that's that's the beginning of some promising signs, but there's a lot more to do, especially on platforms like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Um, you know, I, and I think from a leadership level, this is uh, uh, this is really key. Um, you know, there's been the question of should Elon Musk be on Trump's advisory board? And uh, Fred Wilson had the line. He said, you know, if you uh, if you lie with the dog, you're going to get fleas. And I, I think that that's one of the things we really have to. Um, have to keep in mind because there is a there's a, a an intentional agenda and effort to to eliminate an idea of objective truth in civic dialogue. Um, that's the only way um, uh, kind of administrations that play like this can can really win. So I think that's a really important role for anyone in the technology community and the science community to say you know we've got to uh, we've got to step up and, and do something about this. And you know I just I was in D.C. yesterday uh, with for meetings and. It was a crazy day to be in D.C. I was uh, actually meeting with someone an hour before the Comey announcement. Um, and there's someone who's deep into the investigation into Russia and Trump uh, uh, connections. And he was like, look, there's a, it's a certainty that a bomb is going to drop by the FBI about the connections between Trump and Russia. Um, and then an hour later, Comey was, uh, was booted. And, you know, there's this long history of... of objective uh, application of law between the Justice Department, FBI, and the, the presidency. So it's all part of the same thing to, to be an attack on objective truth. And I think the tech community really has an opportunity to step up and innovate, but also an, an obligation to, to protect civic space. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, I think, so So after this piece came out, uh, I was invited to debate the former prime minister of Sweden about whether or not the internet is a force for democracy in Brussels, at the Brussels Forum. Yeah. And it was a fascinating event. 350-plus world leaders there, including people like John McCain and the president of Estonia and the secretary general of NATO. But the fascinating thing to me was... I, I think in that community, I found that people were more concerned about and activated about doing something about this stuff uh, than in the tech community generally. Hmm. Um, so outside the tech community, there's a suspicion, but inside the tech community, there's maybe less so. It's sort of your, your. I think it's it's more like th- on the global and international stage, at least within this group of the kind of transatlantic elite, right. as they call themselves. Okay. Uh, there's, they see what happened in the United States and they see that as a, the election having been stole, stolen huh. essentially by Russia. And there's a concerted international effort to have that not happen in other elect, in other countries. Well, so yeah, and, is- and we, and, and we just really quickly, we, we had conversations there with 
diplomats and political operatives from Germany and France. And from their perspective, it was the 11th hour in an all-out cyber war. I mean, there's, there's no uh, delusions. There's no kind of controversy around it. It's just like our country is under attack. And they've been used to that because they've been so close to Russia for a long time and dealing with Russia espionage and other things. Um, but yeah, Germany is, uh, you know, they're really trying to, you know, man the trenches of the cyber war in the lead up to their election. Um, and they're working with people in their tech community, their people in their intelligence community to try and protect uh, their democratic and civic dialogue. I mean, and that was the fascinating thing also about Macron's election, right? Like in the week before the election, he was massively hacked. And the French government went out there and said, if anyone publishes any of the hacked files, mm. we're going to put you in jail. Right. So and that's, that's, a, that's a pretty unprecedented step to take, right. but because it's essentially limiting freedom of press. Yeah, yeah, the French don't have the same First Amendment ideas that we do. <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I think they don't, actually. I think, well, yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we love our First Amendment, and... But in any event, so so did you meet Maria Popova? Did she come by the matter? Uh, <laughs> did she come by the matter incubator and talk to you about stuff? Or have you ever met her? She's in Brooklyn, right? No, I haven't met her. Okay. Yeah, I just saw her mention on the site. And oh. it made me, it made me curious because she's. I love that. I love I'm, I'm a big done. fan. I'm a big fan of hers. Yeah, but, me yeah. too. So look, okay, so Mike, just this thing about this. Or I wanted to just to highlight this for a minute. So you guys wrote this really amazing piece. She spent like months months working on about the, the rise of the weaponized AI machine. And then, as a result, you wind up debating the former president of... Prime Minister Prime of Sweden. Prime Minister yeah. of Sweden. What a, so that really just came out of a... That debate, that opportunity came out of a, a, a piece of writing you did. Well, it was more than a piece of writing. It was a new, it was a new filter and a new way of thinking about the world okay. that no one in the political sphere was doing at that point. Okay. And but, there were some, there were some reporters who had covered parts of that, yeah. and in particular, like Carol Codwallader, I think that's how you say her name, at the Guardian, okay. had really started digging into this even before we did. But we were the yeah. first one that, that put it all together in a way that, that you could see the whole picture. Oh, that's a wonderful. That's a wonderful story. What a great thing. That must have been really exciting to, for that opportunity, but nerve wracking too. Right? It was fun. It was fun, actually. <laughs> was fun. Yeah, you it were, was mostly really you were fun. A cool, you were a cool, collected human. I, I, I think oh, I was she, she, yeah. It, it was my first debate, and in my my first debate ever in in my life was against the former prime minister of Sweden. So. What an yeah. awesome story. And Barrett, Barrett was cool as a cucumber. They actually took a poll at the beginning, and it was 80% agreed that the internet was a force for democracy. And, that, and Barrett was debating the negative. At the end, it had totally flipped, and 67% thought it wasn't. And I was sitting with a group of U.S. mayors. There were people, people there that were like, oh, my gosh, that's like Brexit results. <laughs> and the BBC reporter that was moderating went up yeah. to the former prime minister of Sweden and was like, how did you blow such a big lead? And he was like, he was clearly not happy. Like, this, is a guy, like, this is a guy who is like the, an elder statesman, right? Yeah. He, he sent the first email between two heads of state when he was the prime minister to Bill Clinton in the U.S. Yeah. So. That's a, that's amazing. That's I love cool. that story. What a great story. That's yeah. that's got to be one of my favorite stories I've heard in a long time. Yeah. So well, awesome. I'm glad we could bring you such pleasure <laughs> this morning. Well, that's well, that's. I mean, that's. But that's. I mean, that's sort of why people join the community, right? Mm -hmm. So Scout AI is an. It, it, it's a. You have to join the community, and that's why people join it. So 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 Brett, I I love some of the things you said. You said we're entering science fiction times. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Yeah yeah, and and just kind of expanding on that a little bit. It's uh, 
Um, one of the filters, if you want to think about where things are going, it's like, well, you can read Gartner reports or something else, but we've really seen this over and over and believe that if you want to know where tech and economics is going, you need to know the stories lodged in the minds of inventors, right? And I had this slide in this presentation I gave uh, of six tech titans that all cite science fiction is shaping their worldview and using it in an ongoing way. And it was Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Bill Gates, Paul Allen, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk, right? And you know, Elon Musk names his drone rocket pad ships after, uh, you know, after characters from science fiction novels. And Jeff Bezos is using it to think about the next phase of robotic shipping and, and automated shipping. And so that's um, knowing that can help illuminate where things are going, but also using those same tools when you think about in your business, like, where should we go? What's happening next? How can I anticipate the the needs of, of uh, you know, my customers. So, but it's, it's, it's fun once you kind of see, like, we've heard for 10 years, like, oh, we're storytelling creatures, we're all storytelling creatures, but it's true. It, like, it, it shapes our science and our technology innovation. Hey, Mike, should we, should we talk about the, the AI work that you've been, work, you've been doing? But Mike's been doing some, some work around, some, some work around AI and, and, uh, how do you how do you given the work you've done on that, Mike? How do you how do you think about these issues? Um, well, the AI stuff I've done, I, I haven't. I, it's that project kind of wrapped up. We finished it, and uh, and so I haven't worked on AI in a, in a you know it's been probably six months. But um, what what I found striking about it from a developer standpoint was how accessible the stuff is. Um, I mean, obviously the the cutting edge uh, science in terms of, of uh, neural networks is getting published, you know, kind of at a crazy rate. I mean, if you watch, I have some folks I follow on Twitter that just published, you know, they just kind of re retweet uh, papers. And, and, you know, if you look at the papers, I mean, the, the, the science is all right there in the open and it's happening fast and it's, it's not that hard to leverage. So, you know, I was able to do some kind of interesting computer vision stuff using neural networks um, and it was not as hard as you'd think. Um, so that's, that's, I don't know, exciting or scary. Um, I've, I've been reading more about that. Like I, there's a great article to go back to the, to the brain uh, computer interface stuff. There was a great article that came out after Elon Musk. Um, I guess he announced that he, they were, they were funding this company to do the neural lace. Um, this, uh, this blog called uh, wait, but why, I don't know if you guys have oh, seen that. Them. Oh yeah. They're yeah. fantastic. Wait, so they did. Why? Joe, you have they to did read an that. article. Um, it's a great article. It it's it took me. It's 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 one of these like dense articles, basically breaking down what the what the um, the neural link would look like and ways it could possibly work and 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 talking about the science. And um, it it took me four days to read it. Every night before bed, I would read like you know a few more pages of this of this article and then just think about it. And it, it just it was pretty dense stuff in terms of like the ideas. Um, but uh, it was great. It really broke down kind of. The, really step by step like like where we are in terms of computers talking with brains and and the various ways that we can do it um if you i'll um i guess the 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 place to find it would be i guess it's wait but why and if you look at their recent articles look for one about the neural link um it, you'll find this article it is it is great yeah two, uh, two things on that one is i love the wait but why story because it's just this guy tim urban who would write it one post a week. He'd have a dinner party with his buddies and they'd talk about something. Then he'd explain it. And one day, uh, he got a call from Elon Musk's assistant being like, hey, would you be willing to meet with Elon Musk to talk about like some of what he's working on? And Tim Urban's response was, yes, I am available between five minutes from now and the end of time. Uh, 
for a meeting with Elon Musk. Um, but he sat down and uh, talked through like all of their space plans and everything else. And this was kind of the, the next installment. So he's kind of kind of become Elon's like story whisperer a yeah, little bit. He's, he's become uh, his explainer. His yeah, um, totally. But uh, but yeah, the, the brain interface, I, I would really say this is an area that we were kind of doing this with self-driving cars a couple years ago where, you know, it, it was hard to convince people that it was so, so near, right, that it was just around the corner. People really couldn't buy it. Uh, and now people are starting to get it. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to avoid it. Um, I think that's the same thing we're seeing with uh, augmented reality and uh, and direct brain interfaces. They're much uh, closer than we think. And I think the connection between those two is really interesting, right? If you can start to change someone's perception of reality through the optic nerve in the form of augmented reality, literally filtering their lens on reality, and then have some kind of feedback or sensor into how that's affecting the brain, that has incredible potential for therapeutic use cases, medical use cases, and, and also cults. and also cults and digital addiction um, and political manipulation. Um, it is it is the next major medium that I think will dwarf uh, online radio TV combined, um, and we are nowhere near to appreciating its power from a business and entrepreneurial and scientific standpoint, but also a political and regulatory standpoint. I would add. I mean, one of the one of the things that are the books, the science fiction books that I think does a good great job of exploring this is a book by a, a scout advisor, actually Ramaz Nam. It's called Nexus, hmm. and it's a whole trilogy about uh, brain computer interfaces and how oh. how they're kind of used and and all of these different brain to brain battles that go on between people and power struggles and. Huh. Yeah, it's so great. I just, I literally just finished up the last book in the tr in the trilogy. I've been I've been listening to it on audiobooks for for a while, and um, yeah, really great, really great. Um, that's so you, Nexus? he's on your he's Nexus. on your advisory board. Yeah, you get to talk. You got to have conversations with him about. We about do tech. sometimes. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, this this book is great. You should check it out. Yeah. It's it's a good read. I mean, in in terms of like entertainment value, it, I think it strikes a nice balance between trying to be realistic in terms of of things that could happen, but also you know uh, not be too restricted and 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 still tell an interesting story. And um and he does he does these great like at the end of each book he has a section where he talks about the the science technology theory, behind yeah. the or the science behind the book, and he talks about the current state of where these things are and and and. You know, because the idea is that the book is based on, you know, science. I mean, it, it's a, I think it's 2040 or something is, is around the time period that he thinks he's talking about. But yeah, and, um, and he spent, Ramez Nam spent years talking to scientists, neuroscientists, technologists, people in the field, building it up. And I think he does a great job of making sure that there's legitimate science projected and displayed, but also not letting it get in the way of a compelling narrative. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of a fine line to walk because, Either the narrative can be too wishy-washy and it's just, you know, nonsense, science and tech uh, hand-waving, or it can be too, uh, too heavy, too loaded down. And that does a good job of walking that balance, I think. Funny, fun story, though, about, about Mez. Uh, so I actually first heard about him through Michael Arrington when I was running an event for uh, Crosscut. And Michael Arrington was one. I, I drove up to, to Anacortes to recruit him to be one of the judges for, for this event. Um, and he How'd was it like, go? Did he, did he he's, do it? yeah, he did it. He did it. Okay. He was great. He was he was probably the best panelist. Oh wow, so, yeah. he was awesome. Yeah, he was amazing. Um, yeah, that's cool. Anyways, 
so he was like, hey, have you heard of this guy? And I, we hadn't even started Scout. Like, I was not even in on the sci-fi, you know, track yet. Okay. But he was like, have you heard of this guy, like, Ramez Nam? I think he's got some really interesting ideas. You should read his stuff. <laughs> and so I, I did. I read his book. And then when we started Scout, um, you know, Mez is just, like, he's interested and passionate about climate and using technology to solve global problems. And it was just a very natural uh, kind of ally to to have, so we went and Brett and I went and grabbed coffee with him uh, at a central baking company in Madison nice. Park, and it, you know just kind of asked him to be a part of the team, and he yeah. said, "Yeah, so that's wonderful." We'll see. Is he, is he a Seattle guy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? We'd, we'd love awesome. to have him on the show. Actually, to tell you the truth, <laughs> oh, he's awesome. He'd be great. He's he's always down for a good conversation. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. So you, so for the folks who don't know, you you've collected a lot of really great science fiction writers, right? And, and that's part of the puzzle here. It's part of your game plan overall. How many how, how many people now in that community have you have you sort of gotten to join the Scout community or help with Scout? How many writers of that, of that kind? Oh, man, a lot. Um, I would say probably we've got kind of like a group of maybe like – 10 to 15 core okay. advisors and writers. Okay. Um, people like, you know, David Brin and Greg Bear and uh, Mez, um, Brenda Cooper, who actually lives in Kirkland, oh, okay. um, uh, Madeline Ashby, who's based out of Toronto, Carl Schroeder, who's also based out of Toronto. But we've got a pretty incredible... And then, and then we've been working also um, more recently to feature work from folks like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Right. Um, uh, oh gosh, Infomocracy by Malka Older was another one that we did recently. Infomocracy, yeah, right. she she's focused on the future of democracy, um, and she uses science fiction to explore that world and what right. that could look like. Yeah, right. and those are just those are just the science fiction authors. Uh, out of that, I would say we have another really like thirty core advisors and writers. Um, people bring perspective from the hard science and, and technology side, so they're either like technologists themselves or, or policy leaders and. Are these sci-fi writers using like AI type tools to evaluate what they've written to determine whether or not they're <laughs> good? It's funny. It's funny. I actually. So we we have we have a submissions pipeline for Scout, so anyone can submit a, a original science fiction. And I did get a piece from someone uh, that was about uh, it was a science fiction piece about science fiction being outsourced to artificial intelligence. <laughs> Well, it's a, I'm it sure was a, it was a really fun, a really fun piece. Yeah, no, I've met, I've met people who've tried to. I mean, there's a lot of people I think who've tried to work on that, work on this idea. Like, hey, yeah. we know novels, popular novels follow a certain type of, you know, storyline, mm-hmm. and and so you can and you can actually study people's, uh, you know, sort of emotional reaction on each to each page. Yep, and then you can create tools, presumably, to help you write things that fit, so you can predict their success. Yeah, well, that, that's a that's a huge, you know, knowing the like the, that we are story creatures, that our brains are basically story computers. Um, that's on the kind of AI political stuff. A big thing is like knowing these little micro narratives that can fit into an overall wave that can affect the zeitgeist. Those are things that were the realm of like voodoo ad agency and and you know Mad Men characters <laughs> that are now measurable. Yeah. Uh, and you can lay it against uh, uh, algorithms and do quantitative analysis. Um, so that's yeah, one side. Days, you know, the days of the of the traders on the floor of the securities houses are gone, right? Because they just use robots now. I mean, maybe it won't be too long before we, well, the days of the editor will be gone too. We'll just use robots. 
Well, I think it'll be, I think it'll, uh, I mean, this is the optimist in me. Um, I think in the best instances, it will be teams. It will be humans working with uh, their AI and algorithmic counterparts. Um, but I mean, this goes back to an old, old debate from like the early days of the computer revolution in the 50s. You know, there was the one camp that saw AI as a way to replace humans. And there's another that saw it as a way to amplify and support humans. And I think that's kind of, you know, we're in the early days of that, but I think that's kind of like a, a, an up and coming new deep politics. It's like, which, which side are you on? What are you trying to do with your inventions? Are you trying to amplify and empower humans and get them to work with things? Or are you just trying to like replace them and get margin? Um, and they're not necessarily all good or bad or, or exclusive one or the other, but yeah, that's, that's one of the tricks. Well, should the robots pay taxes? That's what Bill Gates says. <laughs> when you replace a worker with a robot, the robot should pay taxes. You know, I, I thought that was really interesting when he said it. Um, when I, what I read into that was he's basically looking at the numbers and it's like, wow, this is coming faster than people realize and we need to put the brakes on it. Well, we need um, like a universal income or something. We need, we need universal income when no one has jobs because there's no jobs. We're gonna, people are going to need to eat. Yeah. We're gonna have to give people money, so they yeah. can, we're gonna have to give people money. Well, there yeah. is—I mean, there is a tipping point, you know, and you, that's why you see politicians like Barack Obama looking at this because the more that inequality continues to grow across the country, uh, the more the closer we come to the possibility of revolution, right? Yeah, Which, it sounds crazy to say, but it's actually, you know, just it's like at, throughout history, as inequality has grown and resources have declined there's always been this kind of uprising. So I think yeah. the the reason that you're seeing such political, there are two reasons that you're seeing such political acceptance of a universal basic income all of a sudden. One is like, like let's not have a revolution. Right. Two is like, we actually, oh shit, we actually need people to be able to afford to buy the products that these robots are making. Right. Yeah. Right. And this, and this whole thing, this whole area is like, is totally insane and wonderful and happening at a really fast pace where you have, on the one hand, the Treasury Secretary of the United States said one of the most insane things of the last two years, and that's saying a lot. Um, he said that, the, uh, asked about the role of automation in the economy, he said, this is nowhere on my radar. I don't think there's going to be any effect for 50 to 100 years on job loss and automation. This is the Treasury Secretary that's, of the United pretty, States. That's pretty out of touch, considering it's already affecting things, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's reckless. It's totally reckless. Because it's just not true. And you talked to, like, you know, there are multiple robotic uh, food chains that are opening up across the world that, like, boom, that's, like, a major part of the economy. Self-driving cars. And self-driving tru trucks. Yeah, that's on the yeah. way. Truck, like, driving, truck driving and, and car driving is, actually, I think just truck driving is, if I'm recalling correctly, is the, the top job for adults in, like, m at least a third of, if not more, I think it's, like, 40% of U.S. states. Yeah, so, it's, it's ma yeah, male jobs. And, and that and that's going to be replaced like as soon as possible because right. yeah. so it's gonna happen humans are your... bad drivers it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And, so and, and the and the other so thing ahead. about yeah, the other thing about this is I think one reason Silicon Valley hasn't, you know, even though it's kind of got a left-leaning bent, hasn't been full out uh, oppositional to Trump is I think it is I would predict it's only a matter of time when Trump gets down or there's some situation where uh, he directs all that anti-globalization, anti-China energy and directs it against Silicon Valley and says, you know, like, like we all know it's not necessarily China why people are losing jobs, it's automation. 
he can quickly harness a lot of uncertainty about the future, a lot of kind of proto-Luddite anger out in the community of people that are losing their jobs, uh, inequality uh, rage, and direct it right at the technology sector. Like, I think that's one of the biggest vulnerabilities and risks for the tech sector is, you know, this, there can be a lot of angst pointed at, at their way for political gain. And unless something happens, like that, I think that's good. you're going to see that before, before 2020 at some point. Um, it's just too easy of a target, and it fits too closely with the kind of Trump and Tea Party playbook. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if you're if you're trying to appeal to people that are poor or uneducated and you're trying to get them riled up and behind you, it's easy to say, hey, there's these guys here. They all think they're smarter than you. They're, they're working on computers and technology that you don't understand. And they're taking all the money, uh, you know, because that's where all the money is in the economy right now. And they're just leaving but, you. And they're, and, and they're, yeah. And they're manipulating you. And they've made you believe something that's not true and blah, blah, blah. And who knows? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's scary. It's an um, easy target. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Fascinating. Yeah. This has been a great, this has been a really super good conversation. When you get to a, bring oh, things back around to, to what you guys are working on, how can people find out more about Scout? And I mean, I can, can people sign up? I went over to the website. It looks like there's a sign up page. Is there, you guys, uh, you guys have like, um, is it an invite only or how do, how do people find out more and, and, uh, and check things out? Yeah. So it's, so Scout is still invite only at the moment. Um, but you can definitely join the waiting list, uh, and, and at scout.ai and, uh, we will uh, hopefully be able to extend you an invitation in the near future. I, I have some invites to give, Mike. Yeah. I'll, I'll see. <laughs> if you... <laughs> yeah, no, actually, if you ask on Twitter, we see that pretty much every other day. Like, people ask, like, anyone got a scout.ai invite? And people usually jump on it. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, what we, we're getting people through the waitlist pretty quickly these days. That's so. great. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm so pleased that you're doing so. It sounds like things are really going very, very well. So, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's been it's been really fun. It's been a great year. What a, what a ride! What a serious <laughs> yeah, and, ride! Yeah, and thanks for thanks for inviting us on when we were just this weird uh, proto blog that hadn't even launched yet. So science fiction. Yeah, we got this idea. What are you guys gonna do? <laughs> Actually, the thing is, it's a, it's a great. I mean, sometimes you don't see it at the outset. Sometimes you think you might have a good idea, and then later you discover well it wasn't. But sometimes you. You do have a good idea, a really good idea. And I think this is a really good idea. And so Thanks, I'm, I'm totally excited for you. And remember when we first met? I think at our first meeting, I read poetry to you guys. Remember yeah, that? That, was, that was a good trick. That was a good trick. That was, that was, that was a great trick. That was fair yeah. enough. I was like, we like this I hope, I hope you do that at all of your meetings with yeah. potential media startups. <laughs> right. right, right. Yeah. So, well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. It's, it's yeah, fun it's to be great, back in Seattle. Great conversation. Yeah, thanks. We should have you back. I mean, I think this has been, um, I mean, so much great stuff to talk about between the business you're working on and the sci-fi things that, that are just fascinating. Um, thanks for being on. It's been a great conversation. Uh, everyone else, thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week.